we as Christ followers have much to be thankful for, and many times we are overwhelmed by His goodness to us, and we are reminded of that often in the Word of God. It was John Piper in an article published September the 5th, 1995, entitled, The Providence of God, Seeing to the Universe, when Piper used these words to describe God's providence. He says, and I quote, The word providence is striking. It comes from the word provide, which has two parts, pro in the Latin, forward, or on behalf of, and vide in the Latin meaning to see. So you might think that provide means to see forward or to foresee, but it doesn't. It means to supply what is needed to give sustenance or support. And so the noun providence has come to mean the act of providing for or sustaining and governing the universe by God. And I believe that God provides in more ways than just giving us food to eat and clothes on our back. He provides us in His providence. He provides in a providential way. He provides what we need in our walk and relationship with Him to help us grow as faithful disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Question number 27 in what is called the Heidelberg Catechism asks this question. It says, what then is the providence of God? The answer, the almighty and everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were, by His hand, He still upholds heaven and earth with all creatures, and so governs them that the herbs and grass, the rain, drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, yea, all things come not by chance, but by His fatherly hand. Amen. And yet, He has provided the greatest gift, and that is the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I look at the year that we have spent, in fact, the year and a half that we have spent in the Gospel of Mark. We started this journey in June of 2020 in the midst and the throes of the pandemic. And I see God's providence that we are ending today at the resurrection. And at the very same time, we are reflecting upon the birth of our Lord Jesus. And it calls to reason when you ponder upon the incarnation that God the Son came and robed Himself in flesh, becoming God-man, it calls to reason that when you ponder the incarnation, that it only makes sense when you are looking forward and towards the resurrection. And the resurrection only makes sense with the purpose of the incarnation. And they are intricately woven together. I think it would be a practice that would be for us if we celebrate the birth of Christ with the resurrection intact 
and celebrate the resurrection with the incarnation intact. They are both butted up once and together against one another. So, here we are today, ending out the gospel of Mark. It would be the shortest gospel account. As all will, if you will, stand with me as we read this portion of the Word of the Lord with our Bibles marked in Mark chapter 16. We will look at the first eight verses with a sermon that I have entitled, The Power of the Resurrection. If you will, let's read together, beginning at verse 1. And the Word of the Lord says, When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. Very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying one to another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw the stone that had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell the disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Verse 8 says, They went out and they fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Lord, we ask you to bless the reading of the word. God, that you would speak to us through it. Lord, that you would hide me behind the cross of Christ Jesus. May the cross be exalted. May we be humbled and yet edified at the same time. And we pray that you give us clarity today in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now you might be asking, we're finishing out the Gospel of Mark today, and yet there are a few verses that are still before us. And you might have a footnote in your Bible that will say something similar to the fact that the earlier manuscripts of the book of Mark ends right at verse 8. So verse 9 through 20 would be either an addition from the Apostle Peter going back and writing, or Mark writing back in, or they were just simply not in the earlier set of manuscripts. But as respect to the scriptures before us, I will read through them, and then we will expound upon verses 1 through 8. So if you do have your Bible in front of you, I will read those verses, and then we'll jump right back in to verse 8. So verse 9, and you'll notice there will be a parenthetical around that, a bracket letting you know that this was a later addition to the manuscript. So let's read together. Now, when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. And uh, she went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. When, when they heard that he was alive and been seen by her, they would not believe it. And after these things, he appeared in another form or uh, to two of them as they were walking in the country. And, and when they went back, they told the rest, but they did not believe them. Afterwards, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table. He rebuked them for their unbelief, the hardness of heart, 
because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Stop there for a moment. Um, one does not articulate their whole theology upon a verse that is questionable in the early manuscripts. So just take that as a note. Beginning verse 17. And these signs will accompany those who believe in my name. They will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink and add uh, any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere why the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanied signs. Now, if you have a pen and paper and you want to write down some verses that would coincide with these uh, verses, uh, begin in Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through 8. You could also begin in uh, Luke chapter 24, 1 through 10, and also in John's gospel chapter 1. That will give you the same conclusion as to what we find in the ending of the book of Mark chapter 16. Now, jumping back in to these first eight verses before us. So far we have seen Jesus performing miracles. What are some of the things that we have seen Jesus do? Well, Jesus had healed a lame man. He walked on the water. He fed a multitude of people two times. He, he, a, a great multitude, the Bible says, with two fish and five loaves. And the miracles just came from the hands of Jesus. The creator of the universe created more fish and more loaves from his very hands. And so the overarching narrative that we find in Mark's gospel, because it's good to rewind and remind us that the journey that we have taken so far, the overarching story within the book of Mark focuses on the person of Jesus and his humanity and his humility. The major theme in the book of Mark is Jesus as the suffering servant, the Messiah who is the Savior to humanity, but then portrays Jesus in such a way that his servitude is exalted. We said just a few weeks ago that what we find in Jesus is an exalted humility. You will not find another example of humility that will surpass the person of Jesus Christ. So his humility is exemplified in and through the gospel of Mark. We also see Mark demonstrating the divinity of Jesus along the way where the Pharisees and the religious leaders would say, of Jesus healing the lame man who was dipped down into the ceiling in Mark chapter 2, saying, who can forgive sins but God? Right. Who can forgive sins but God? And yet Jesus forgave the man's sins. We find phrases such as the centurion bowing, bowing at the foot of the cross, saying, truly this is the Son of God. These are snippets of Mark giving instances of Christ's divinity. So Mark's main objective is to portray Jesus Christ as the Son of God. We looked last week, if you remember, we found ourselves peering at the stone rolled onto the tomb of Jesus, who was occupying the tomb at the time 
a tomb that was hewn out for one of Joseph of Arimathea. Staring at this two-ton stone, we will find Mary and Joseph. It was a scene that is filled with heaviness and broken promises as Joseph of Arimathea and, and the Marys stare at this tomb. It is filled with a heaviness, a burden, and broken promises. Or so it seems. You know, sometimes the love that we have for people will make us do some irrational things sometimes. To go above and beyond for the ones that we love. Do you think that that's the case with the ending of Mark chapter 16? That the ladies here are prepared to go above and beyond to tend to the body of the Lord? Let's find out. I will submit to you one point that I have that will stream through the rest of these verses is just simply the resurrection brings clarity. The resurrection clears up the muddy water. Here's some things that the resurrection will do. The resurrection will clear up bad theology. The truth of the resurrection will mend broken relationships. The truth of the resurrection will beckon one to forgive. The truth of the resurrection will bring unity within the body of Christ. The resurrection gives us absolute clarity. Look at verse 1 with me, if you will. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, the mother uh, Mary, uh, Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint him, that is the body of Jesus. And so we know already that the Sabbath day has passed, the day of preparation has passed, getting together the spices and all, all that that would entail preparing the body had already been prepared. So the Marys had everything that they needed to anoint the body of Jesus. And by the way, we have mentioned this before, but the women in the gospel account help us to understand the validity of the gospel account, the validity, the authority, the authenticity given by evangelist Mark. And we find this in the other gospel accounts too. And you might say, well, why, preacher? Why is that such a big deal that women are spotlighted here as being the ones who are going to the tomb and will discover the tomb. Well, women in that culture, as you might know, they were looked down upon. They were looked down upon as not being a credible witness. And by them being in, in this account helps us to understand that none of the gospel writers whatsoever would have made up a story where the women were the prime witnesses. For instance, if, if I was going to make up a story, I was going to start a new religion, and I had one central figure that I wanted to exalt, and I wanted to sit down, and I wanted to make that story up. In that day and time, I would have been out of my mind to put the women as the centerpiece. Nobody would have heard my story. And so, it helps us to make sense of the authenticity of the event. We believe the account because God said it to be so, but it certainly does help us to get some understanding. It's almost, it's almost like God knew what He was doing, right? It's almost like God knew what He was doing when He stitched the Holy Word of God 
together. When he had something to say to humanity and he gifted us with his word, it's like, it's like he knew, right? Because he is all-knowing, right? And he stitched it together for his glory. And so the ladies, they go to, their, to the tomb. They make their way early in the morning and with spices in hand. If you recall, the Bible also tells us that Nicodemus uh, was the one who brought unto Jesus and to Joseph of Arimathea some 75 to 100 pounds of spices to anoint the body of Jesus. So they had already done a preliminary uh, anointing of spices with the body, but the women wanted to make sure they'd done it right, right? They wanted to make sure it was done right. And so they made their way to, to the tomb. And furthermore, since the Hebrews did not embalm like the Egyptians, they would anoint the body with spices and oils to diminish the smell of decay. The women prepared their elements, the spices, and they did not expect to see Jesus alive. Okay, they did not expect to see the risen, risen Lord. The Bible tells us it was early on in the first day of the week, the sun had risen, and they went to the tomb. The Bible tells us that they went to or towards the tomb early in the morning, and Mark says, before the sun rose. Now, there are some scholars that have speculated that there are differences in the translations between the other gospel accounts, that the ladies came to the tomb somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. in the morning. And the point that Mark is trying to make is not necessarily to look at your calendar, if you will, or to look at your sunrise forecast and to know that the sun is going to rise at 6.30 a.m. in the morning. That is not the point that Mark is trying to make. The author, Mark the Evangelist, is not necessarily trying to give you, the reader or the worshiper, an exact minute, but to denote the devotion that these women had for Jesus, willing to get up early in the morning and go to anoint the body. Now, I would go as far as to say that their hopes of Jesus as Messiah were shattered, as like the other disciples. And they saw in Jesus a master rabbi, a master teacher, they saw within Jesus the power of God. They witnessed the power of God in Jesus. They heard him teach right doctrine. They heard him clear up the muddied water of the law presented by the Pharisees. He cleared all that up in right teaching. He had compassion on all that he came in contact with. All he encountered, he had compassion on them. Unless you were, of course, a religious leader a Pharisee or a Sadducee or a scribe. But a relevant point, an applicable point, in highlighting their devotion and their love for Jesus would be something like this for you and I today. Something as simple as attending worship with the saints of the Lord. Waking up early in the morning, spending time in prayer, Time with God. When was the last time you spent quality, intimate time with your Lord in meaningful prayer? When's the last time you spent meaningful time reading the, reading, reading the Word 
And if you really think about it, if you really put it into perspective, it should be easy for us to rise up in the morning, come to church, exercise the disciplines of our faith, such as reading the Bible, such as praying, such as worshiping, than it would to walk a dark, lonely road, not knowing what's ahead. Verse 3, they're on their way to the tomb. And here is where we find, it seems they weren't thinking things all the way through here. Their emotions, it seems, had gotten the best of them. Because they said one to another, who will roll away the stone for us, the entrance of this tomb? It could be that they had faith that the Lord would provide, such as God would provide a sacrifice for Abraham. God will provide. It is interesting that the Marys are on their way to the tomb and did not know how the stone was going to be moved. And if they understood anything of the protocol in Rome, they would have known that there would have been some guards on watch. They would have known that there would have been a seal on this tomb that that could not be broken unless it was a royal edict to break it and So they would have known about these things if they knew Roman protocol, the seal that could not legally be broken by anyone. There are a couple of different angles that that we can take. One would be that the women were so distraught, so overcome by emotion that they did not think through, they did not think about the stone being in the way until after they were en route. And so we infer that in the text because the Bible doesn't say this is what they were thinking. They certainly had compassion. We know that. The gospel tells us that. They had compassion and they had love towards Jesus. And I believe that it, in some way, clouded their judgment. Secondly, we could imply that they just had simple faith that the stone would be moved. And either one of those are applicable. And now that we know that these ladies were dedicated to preserving the body of Jesus, We find that their reaction at the tomb tells us what we need to know, that they were not expecting Jesus to be alive. Now, have you ever been so excited? Have you ever been so distraught, so worried, so overcome with care, concern, just burdened down, just sorrowful? Have you ever been so sorrowful that it made you not think straight? I think we've all been there, haven't we? Have you ever been so excited about something or bogged down with care that you would walk out of your front door, get down the road only to realize that you have forgotten something important, but you carry on anyway because that's what we do, right? We carry on anyway. I remember very vividly comical Story. I remember very, very vividly. I was fresh out of high school, and my brother and I, we bought a little two-man pontoon boat. You ever seen those, those two-man boats? You can, one man can get on one side, and the other can get on the other side. You can literally pick this little two-seated pontoon boat and put it in the back of the truck. My brother and, I, brother and, I, and myself, we brought, bought this little two-man pontoon boat, and... Uh, Two people could load it in a truck, and, and, and we, we bought this boat with the anticipation of 
of we wanted to get a, a little a little trailer for it and a little trolling motor. It was just going to be a boat where he and I could go out on the water, enjoy the outdoors, and fellowship, and, and, and fish, and, and take it into small ponds and, and lakes. Now, the very day that we got, we got it home, we, we got it home, uh, we decided, hey, let's go ahead and go fishing with it. It didn't matter if we didn't have a trailer to put it on, it didn't matter if we had a, a, a trolling motor to power it, or anything. We didn't, listen, we didn't even have life jackets. We strapped this little two-man boat on the top of my 1995 Chevrolet Spectrum, tied it down with some cheap yellow rope, my brother's hand out on one side and my hand out on the other side, holding it down, get the visualization of like a mattress, somebody trying to hold it down. Yeah, same idea. Not to mention we had 25 minutes, 30 minutes to go, had to drive through Jacksonville to get where we wanted to go. And honestly, we look like a couple of idiots <laughs> going down the road trying to hold that boat down. But we were so excited that it clouded our judgment. And the way that I know that it clouded our judgment is we put the boat in the water. Wind was about 15 miles per hour without a trolling motor. We found ourselves blown up into a lake against the bank with two broken paddles. I had to come back the next day and uh, with a bigger boat and pardon the pun, but to fish the smaller boat out and take it back home. We were so overcome with excitement that we now owned a little boat that it clouded the way that we were thinking. And the women were so distraught in this episode that it clouded their, their thinking. But you know what? That's okay. It's okay because the Lord certainly used these women regardless of their thinking. In times when we are distraught, in times when we are sorrowful, in times when we are bogged down with care, when we are in a place where we cannot think rightly or where we are worried, uh, worried to death about something or carried away with burdens and cares and turmoil, the Holy Spirit ministers to us in those deep, dark valleys. And so here are the women heading to the tomb of Jesus with a 2,000-pound stone in front of it. Now they realize the stone is there. This has been a major oversight on their behalf, but what do they do? Mary, I'm sorry. Let's go back home. Sorry, Mary, let's go back. We'll see if we can find some disciples. I don't know where they're scattered at, but they scattered like roaches. I don't know where they're at. Let's wait till another day. They pressed on, didn't they? Looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled back. It was very large, Mark tells us. Kind of a side note here. It was very large. Letting you know that these two ladies would not, these three ladies in this account would not be able to roll this away. Here's the realization. Here is this one moment in history. This realization that God himself has met this great need. The realization that it is finished is Danny and Sandra played that 
beautifully this morning. It is finished. Here is the realization that the debt has been paid. The curtain has been torn from top to bottom. There is no more need for a man to mediate between God and man other than the person of Jesus. The debt has been paid and something extraordinary has happened. Think about the privilege that these women have to be the first to see that the stone has been rolled away. I remember watching a behind-the-scene documentary of a well-known movie. And there was a gentleman who was filming this documentary, and as he is filming the documentary, um, he, is on, he is on site to be able to see them shoot the movie. And one particular scene, there is a, a man, a, a character in the movie, who is playing the bad guy. Right? He busts through the window, and they cut! So the man on site who's been filming this documentary behind the scene, he goes over and he scoops up all the glass. And he saves the glass. That's to say, I was there on this day of the shoot of this movie. movie trying to get this movie uh, memorabilia. Folks, this was a great moment of historical memorabilia. To see with your own eyes that the stone had been rolled away and to see that the tomb was empty. So they look up, they see that this 2,000 pound stone had been pushed out of the way and they are about to encounter this angelic being who greets them. The other gospel accounts and elsewhere in the Bible, when we find the angelic or an angelic being, the accounts in scripture give us detail help us to flesh out what an angel actually is in the totality of Scripture. But Mark gets right down to the point, which is part of the characteristic of the Gospel of Mark. It is quick, it is short, it is concise, it is to the point. God has answered the prayer of the stone being rolled away, but He has answered so much more. Look at verse 5. And entered the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. The Marys look up, they see a man dressed in white, sitting on the right hand of the entrance, and one would, one would suspect, knowing the totality of the biblical narrative, that the angelic hosts are often depicted as wearing white, as a sign of purity. This is an angel. This is a messenger sent from God. White could also signify sanctification or being set apart as a messenger of God. Simply put, this person was sent by God as a messenger, an angel. And although the Bible, once again, in the totality of the biblical narrative, shows us that angels in heaven are not subject to male or female, but often we find that the masculine presentation is used often in Scripture, and is the case here. The angels are often depicted as messengers in the Bible as well. If you were to look at the end of the Revelation, we find that angels uh, are heavenly messengers. They are uh, beings, or they can also be human. God uses angels, or the letter is addressed in Revelation 1.20, to the angels, or pastors, or stars, it says, the churches of Asia Minor, a reference to Revelation 1 and verse 20. 
they notice quite quickly that there is no body of Jesus. He's not there. And the angel gives a quick snapshot of the gospel. He says to them first, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified and has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. The angelic host greets the women, gives this very quick snapshot of the events leading up to the resurrection. The one that you seek who was crucified is not here. Other gospel accounts, you might hear the question and the words, Why seek ye the living amongst the dead? Now, there have been thousands of years of expectation and thousands of years of misunderstanding surrounding Messiah. Thousands of years of misconstruing the true Messiah. He would not come as a political figure, but come as a substitute for sin. Messiah as Savior. And now God has brought these expectations to completion. This one moment, these women get the extreme privilege of being the first one to stand upon the ground of the greatest event in history. In this one moment of time, there is a deep understanding that light bulb moment, that eureka moment that God has moved history itself. And mind you that God is always moving in history. God is always moving in this one moment, God has bent history to His will in a magnificent and in a demonstrable way. He, has, he is not there, but He is alive. Amen? So, the resurrection brings clarity. What do we do with the resurrection church? Church, what do we do? With the resurrection. Well, I got a couple of suggestions. Number one, we rejoice. We have reason to be joyful and rejoice. Secondly, we go and we tell that good news. We don't hoard it to ourselves. We don't say, well, that person will never be saved. We, we don't tuck it away and hoard it to ourselves. We go and tell the good news, which is exactly what these ladies do. Mark verse 7. He says to them, Go and tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him just as he told you. It's very odd, if you will, that he mentions Peter here. The messengers tell the women to go to Peter and to tell him that Jesus is alive, that he will, be, he will see them in Galilee, which he had already told them. Jesus had told them that in Mark chapter 14 and verse 28, where he says, But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. So he already knew that, according to the gospel of Mark 14, 28. The amazing truth here is that God calls people and he equips them as well. I, I read an article this week 
there was a question posed, does God call the equipped or does he equip the call? And I don't think it's an either or. I think it's a little bit of both. And this is one of those occasions where we can see a little bit of both happening in this instance. What do we know of Peter's position so far? Well, Peter denied the Lord Jesus. He is now, he, and the Bible says the last thing of Peter is what did he do? He wept bitterly. He was broken, he was hurting because he abandoned the Lord and now he is called in some way. See, this is the beautiful portion, little snippet of scripture that goes to show us that God does not call us based upon how good we are, but he calls us according to his sovereign will. God will not see anything good in Larry Stevens to save him. He will not see any savable attributes in myself that will save me. And I'm glad that God calls us to himself to know him. And it is his work alone. Nothing in me. I once uh, heard Robert Smith, Robbie Smith, who was probably one of my favorite modern expositors, say this. He said, God is not so concerned with how strong you are, but how weak you are. For when we are weak, He is strong. Now, God wants us to grow in our grace and knowledge of who He is and to be mature. God is not concerned how strong of a Christian you might think you are or how super spiritual you might think you are. He wants us to be weak in ourselves so that Christ can be exalted. I would imagine if any, anyone in here could identify, identify with anyone in the Gospel of Mark, we would probably say, well, we identify with Judas and we certainly identify with Peter. How many times can we say without a show of hands because we know that we would raise our hands, how many times can we say that we have disobeyed the Lord? Or we somehow have not been obedient to... We know that God has called us to a ministry or to a mission to share our faith, and, and yet we fail. And yet this messenger tenderly tells these women, go and tell Peter. The angel tells, go to Peter, go to the disciples. So they leave. Still frightened, I imagine, they go on the way to keep it to themselves, knowing the culture... Verse 8 says, they went out and they fled from the tomb, trembling and they were, they were in astonishment, had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they knew they were afraid. The Bible says that the women were overcome. They were frightened, frightened. It had seized them. Not, uh, not knowing what particularly to make of what they just saw, other than the words of Jesus came to pass. The words of the Lord Jesus, no doubt, had been echoing as he had predicted his own resurrection. And they knew the culture all too well that they would not hear them. For a credible witness in that day and, and, then, and then to know the culture, it must come from a male. Now, uh, that doesn't mean that the Bible is written from a chauvinistic viewpoint. For our liberal theologians and our liberal friends, though, the Bible is not written from a chauvinistic viewpoint. It simply reflect, reflects the culture of the day. For instance, if I would go out and farm my North Carolina, 
I would not go to our farmers in the field and open up a blueprint of how to build a skyscraper in the middle of that farm, of, of that field. Now, would I? Nor would I go to New York City and Times Square and look down and say, you know what? This would be a good place to, uh, to, uh, to till a road and plant some tobacco down it. How much sense would that make to those folks in New York City? Simply put, God used the most humble people in the culture, those beneath societal radar to spread the greatest news of all time. So don't think that God can't use you where you are at right now. So, that being said, this concludes the exposition of Mark's gospel. So, somebody praise the Lord that we made it through. In fact, you'll find further details in the other gospel accounts about the hand of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, that Paul would say the resurrection, that if Christ is not risen from the grave, if he is not alive, then we are, we are fools. And our faith is in vain. We would be fools if Christ is not alive. In fact, Paul writes this, and I'll close on this. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. I just read. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures that we just read. And that he has appeared to Cephas and to the twelve. And then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time. Most of whom are still alive, but some have fallen asleep or have passed on. If the resurrection is not true, then our beliefs are foolishness. But praise be to God, he is alive. Amen. Let's, uh, let's pray together. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time in the Word. We thank you, God, for holding us accountable to it. Lord, we thank you for giving us the strength to press on through this Gospel account, giving us your wisdom, your Word. It is your Word. God, I pray that hearts have been changed and minds have been changed according to your beautiful Word. We praise you, God, that you have helped us sustain and stay the course. And Father, as I pray this prayer now, I know that there might be some folks in here, God, who do not know you as Lord and Savior. I pray if it be your sovereign will, God, you would save them and call them to yourself today. Uh, God, I do not have a dog in the fight as to who is saved. It is your salvation. You are the author and finisher of the Lord. And I pray that today, as those who are being Convicted of their sin, Lord, would fall before you and confess their sins. Father, might be over here, one here today who is struggling, going through adversity, God, going through hardship, Lord, and like the Marys that we saw today, and going towards the tomb, Lord, that they were distraught, they were over, over, overcome with, uh, with, with care and concern and love for their Lord, and might be one here today who was working through those emotions and they're burdened down with, with cares, Lord, and we, we know because of the resurrection, because you're alive. Lord, that we can lay them before you. We pray for that one today, to lay them before you. The resurrection brings clarity. The resurrection brings us forgiveness uh, of our sins and also 
brings clarity as we forgive one another. Lord, so I pray these things now. As your word is gone forth, you do the good work as only you can do. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll ask you if you will, if you'll stand in this moment of invitation. I simply just want to today, as we stand and sing, I believe it is important for the church to sing hallelujahs to God, don't you? Praises to God. So this is a simple course. It is page 189 in your hymnal, but hopefully we all know this. I just want us to spend some time thinking about the resurrection and the incarnation as they, as they merge. Let's just sing this together. Simple course. Simple to sing. Hallelujah. Would you sing that with me? So those who might want to come to the altar, you're welcome to do that. Please do that. Mean business with God today. Let's sing that together.